Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I know you know this, but I wonder if our listeners know it too or have heard of it. They shall grow not old as we that let left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. David, when would you hear that? Well, there would be services uh, every year especially. Well, it's part of this poem that becomes the title of Lisa Bigelow's book. Lisa, welcome to 3CR and tell us what is your title? Thank you, Jan. Uh, The title is We That Are Left, and it's um, the title of my first novel, which is set during the Second World War in Melbourne and follows the lives of two women waiting and hoping for their fellows to come home. Well, let's see who they are before they go. Tell us about Harry. Um, Why is he leaving? Harry is um, a career sailor who has been teaching at the um, HMAS Cerberus um, School for Officers and uh, he has just received his dream posting uh, to serve on HMAS Sydney, which has just arrived back from the Mediterranean. No, I think anybody who has a little bit of age or knows anything about World War II will know HMAS Sydney was uh, Australia's greatest warship. It was meant to be the iconic, never-to-be-destroyed thing. It was seen as invincible. It was almost Australia's Titanic in terms of um, people thinking that it was... Um, almost uh, mythical in its in its status. Mm. So who's he leaving behind when he goes sailing on the Sydney? Harry's leaving his wife May uh, behind, who's heavily pregnant with their first child. Uh, they've been married for seven years at this point. Uh, they've had a couple of miscarriages and now uh, May is in her seventh month and mm. um, about to become a mother. So off he goes in the Sydney. Now, I'm not telling anything or giving any plots away here because everybody, I think, knows, who knows a little mm. bit of history, knows that it vanishes. It's so it's And here it links into your personal tale too, Lisa. Apparently your grandfather was on the Sydney. That's right. This part of the story is, is very much inspired by my grandparents' story. Um, my grandfather... Um, was serving on the Sydney when it disappeared off the West Australian coast in 1941. All 645 crew disappeared as well. So for many years there was um, much controversy about what might have happened to it, Mm. uh, where it might have been and uh, how much the government knew about it as well. Well, this links us directly into how we find out about news today which really made me think about your book and sort of taking me back to the way news was reported. There there are really striking similarities when you look at the disappearance of MH370, the Malaysian airliner that disappeared possibly in a similar area of the Indian Ocean. And although we live in this highly connected time with, with amazing communication compared to that time, uh, 
there is still the the feeling that people are not being told everything that there is to know. The government is controlling it. That's right. And what happens then? You know, people start imagining things. There's the conspiracy theories. There's, and this is what happened with um, the the HMS Sydney. Absolutely, the rumours take hold where Mm. there's a lack of um, real information, and certainly um, the rumours were a very big part of this story. Was your grandmother? As stoic as May, Harry's wife. Absolutely. She she didn't talk very much about uh, losing her husband or about the disappearance and, and she was um, long gone by the time the ship was found. So um, she, like so many of her generation, just kept that story to themselves and doing the research for this um, really helped me to feel that I was able to connect more fully with their story. And May in particular, because she just she just believes that, that Harry is will return. She she dreams of him, she feels his physicality. Well, but she's not the only one, not the only woman involved with uh, within this book, We That Are Left. Grace. Now, Grace's father runs the local paper. And look, this is a snappy bit from page 24. It's Grace and her father having a conversation. This is Nev talking to Grace about what he needs uh, when she's when she lets him know that she's desperate to become a reporter on the paper. Um, I need a reporter that can cover everything, a real reporter who eats, breathes and sleeps news, someone who sees headlines in everything around them. Send me to the cattle sales, the meatworks. I don't care, bushfires. I'm not scared. I'll even do footy training. Yeah, the footballers would love that. I'll be chased out of the pub if you start swanning around to the change rooms. Besides, you can't take a job away from a fella, someone with a wife and kids to support. It's just not right. <sighs> so we were, are talking 1941, thankfully. <laughs> well, well, yes. yes. <laughs> uh so in that, the father says, you've got to see headlines. And, of course, Grace does see them everywhere. It's a job that brings her to Melbourne and she sees the headline, fatherly news editor greets new secretary. <laughs> so where's she working? Uh, Grace has uh, landed herself a job on the uh, afternoon daily newspaper uh, the Tribune, and um, she had originally applied for a cadetship, but she was taken on as a secretary. And in those days, mm. um, it was very, very rare to see a woman in a newsroom in anything other than a secretarial or support role. So um, there is a, a chap, a reporter, that catches her eye, Phil Taylor. Uh, he reports on sport, but a lot of the other reporters are leaving. And I thought this was, of course, interesting. What did people want to read about at this time? Well, there was so little um, space left for local news. Um, most people wanted to read about the actions overseas that their boys um, were involved in. So, so much of the news was coming over the wires. Um, and many of uh, the sporting codes were put into hiatus during the um, during the war as well. The AFL, the races, all mm. sorts of so less jobs for reporters. Absolutely. Look, this was a lovely little caption, and this uh, this part between <coughs> Grace and Phil takes place on one of their early dates. Would you read page two hundred and seventeen, please? And I'm speaking with Lisa Bigelow of, of We That Are Left. Grace gazed at the picture strip of herself and Phil from the photo booth in St Kilda. 
In the first one they sat chastely side by side. In the second he had one arm around her shoulders, the other hand clasping hers. In the next photo he was kissing her cheek, and in the last he was cross-eyed with his tongue poking out the side of his mouth as she kissed him just in front of his ear. Goofy, she knew, but the precious memory of a summer night when the sunset had burned red and the wind blew hot dry desert air across the water. Their last night before he left for the tropical heat of Singapore. Tropical heat of Singapore. So we knows, know what happened in Singapore, so we're not going to go into that. And as I said, the title is We That Are Left. Now, of course, in the newsroom, it's uh, some days are very quiet. There's less reporters around. But then Melbourne Cup Day, there's nobody around because every, all the reporters are out doing sort of local newsy t- stuff. But there's another day. And this is, this is a day which is of importance to many mem- members of the community. And Grace gets her rep- first reporting job. What is she reporting on? This is the um, the day when all of the memorial services were being held at each of the um, the major churches around Melbourne. So um, each denomination held its own service, and uh, with so few reporters left now, general reporters, um, Grace was given the task of going to the Scots Church and um, taking notes um, using her shorthand that she'd learned in secretarial school. Mm. To um, to take notes of of the service as it went along, so that she could bring those back, and one of the sub editors would would write those notes up into the major story covering all of the services. Yeah, so she gets the first chance to nearly see her byline on the front page, but not quite. <laughs> she, <laughs> but then she gets a job in the women's area, which you know is, is quite interesting for her. It puts her in the way of some photographers who may be interesting too. But finally, she actually gets a week in the country with a driver. And, and a car and a photographer. And this I thought was really good because this is, connects um, Grace with some of the other characters. She sees these some women at the memorial service. She also goes to one of the women's farms and finds out a lot more about reporting on women's land care. That's right. The Women's Land Army was um, was an enormous uh, resource during the Second World War because so many of the men had gone overseas or were injured and and unable to run the farms. So uh, the women were doing all of that work themselves. And uh, women were mobilised from the cities as well and um, billeted out to farms Mm -hmm. to help and, and assist with that work. So everything from fencing to feeding the chooks mm. and shearing the rams and all sorts of things. But being a good reporter, she goes into the farmhouse and notices there's a chair and nobody sits in this chair. It used to be the chair of Alice's husband who died on the Sydney. That's right. Yes. <laughs> now, we also have another connection with um, Alice and May being friends and May's neighbour. Who were they? Well, who uh, May lives in Williamstown and her neighbours are Sam and Claire. 
Sam is the news editor of the Tribune, um, who is actually Grace's boss. So he is the connection um, between them. There's lots of other characters in this book. The one I particularly liked was Pearl Atkinson, the local (laughs) gossip, who wrecked Auntie Ett's chance of romance and how she may have a prick of conscience whenever she sits down. Now, (laughs) that was very funny, very clever. (laughs) So the book takes us from March 41 to Feb 47. And there are a lot of things that I didn't know. I didn't know about Hessian bags covering the streetlights, casting a dull glow. And this brownout had increased the number of road accidents Mm -hmm. in Melbourne. I thought that was rather interesting. But many things have happened by the end of this six years. May becomes independent, but how long can she keep the dream of Harry alive? Mm -hmm. Phil has serious anger problems and is extremely jealous with Grace. Uh, And will she have a similar marriage to her own mother? Now, her father came back from World War I and her mother's advice was, it's the war, dear. A lot of them can come back broken. You just have to pray for a good day every now and then to get you through. What happened to the German captain? And how did Alice make, and whether Alice did make the right decision marrying the chap from the next farm? We start with a bit of a poem, and the book ends with a bit from Odysseus about Penelope waiting. You leave us with a bit of a cliffhanger. I have a feeling, Lisa Bidelow, that there could be another book in the making here. (laughs) Is there? Not at this point, no. Ah, well, well done. You've given us a wonderful book about how wives cope with hopes and dreams through war and deal with war's outcomes. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Jan. Thank you, Jan. Now, I've got an interview with Mark Smith. It is a continuation of uh, his novel, um, and it's called Wilder Country. Here we go. Writing a sequel can be a challenging affair. Can the original story be sustained and built upon? Mark Smith, the author of The Road to Winter, takes up that challenge as he continues the saga in Wilder Country. So, Mark, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. It's nice to be here. Now, the sequel has to be a stand-alone book, but at the same time, pick up on all the previous threads. So, writing that first chapter must be a real sort of struggle at times. It is. It's like a weaving process as much as anything else because you're weaving in some detail from the first book while introducing the second book, I suppose. So, if you have a look at the first couple of chapters of Wilder Country, the sequel, um, you'll see the way Finn gets the opportunity to reflect a couple of times on, on what's come before, on the situation that he's in at the moment, um, and so that by the time you get to the second chapter or halfway through the second chapter, you're often running with the with the new story. But you've got then the the background, the same characters, uh, Rowdy, Finn's dog, yep. Kaz. Now who's Kaz again? Yeah, so Kaz is the the young Siley, the sixteen year old Siley that uh, that Finn has rescued in a way in the in the first book and brought back to his town of Angowrie, his quarantine town. And Siley's short for asylum. So, yeah, Siley's short for asylum seeker. So uh, I I wanted that word to make them sound like an underclass because they are in this dystopian society. They've been brought in from detention centres and sold as slaves at public auction. We've picked up on the theme of survival again because Finn and Kaz are living on the coast by themselves. They're hunting for for rabbits for food and all sorts of things. But there's also a quest that comes into this as well. 
There is a quest, and the second book is as much a journey as the first book. Uh, it's a continuation of the same narrative, and a lot of people who be familiar with The Road to Winter would have known at the end of that book what was being set up, really, because you have to dangle enough threads. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. It goes back to your first question. It's interesting the way you need to, in, in the first book, give enough resolution there for the reader to feel satisfied with having completed that book, but also dangle enough threads to lead them on into the second book. Well, in the first book, we had Ramage, who was Mm. the villain, so Mm. to speak, and Finn had the opportunity to sort of dispatch him, Mm. which he doesn't take, Mm. which in some ways, to be unkind, sets it up for the sequel. (laughs) And and so you've got that threat again. But then you've got to sort of change the level of threat. You can't repeat that same sort of thing. You've got to alter, put in a variation. But behind that still, there is a quest which carries over from that first book. That quest is for Finn and Kaz to travel into wilder country and, and basically to confront Ramage to find a child to find a baby. And this is the baby of uh, Kaz's sister, Rose, um, who passed away in the, towards the end of, of The Road to Winter. Uh, the baby was stolen away by Ramage and taken to, as, as far as they know, taken into wilder country. And so that sets them off on this. They, 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 they're bound by a promise. And the promise was to the dying Rose that they would find her child and bring her to safety. And that sets them off on that quest. And the baby's name? The baby's name is Hope. And the baby's yeah. name is Hope. Yeah. So, Which is really interesting because um, I had a lot of – I had some uh, discussions with my editor at the time about, oh, that's, isn't that a bit cliched that they would call the baby Hope? And my argument was, well, yes, but they are 16-year-olds. It's exactly what they would do. It's exactly what the sort of name that they would choose would be that that type of cliche, this is hope. And the baby is also Ramage's child, or not? Well, <laughs> well that's, that's kind of, that's left up to the reader, really. Um, and it was part of the process of putting the first book together was to allude to this past that Rose had come from. And we, and we know that Rose has been abused in this, um, you know, in her period in captivity. Um, what the form of that abuse isn't, isn't sort of detailed, um, because after all, we are talking a young adult novel, um, and there are certain gatekeepers that we need to get past to get young adult novels up and up and into you know libraries, schools, bookshops, etc. Um, but it's fair to say that she she's become pregnant and she's had this child, and Ramage claims the child. Now, whether he's claiming it as just his Siley because he owned Rose as a Siley or not, it's up to interpretation. But what you've also done is raise the level of violence. She lifts a piece of wood the size of a baseball bat and brings it crashing down on Birch's head. There's a sound of bone cracking and the caro lamp hissing where it falls into the damp grass. Birch is thrown forward by the blow, his neck snapping back as he hits the ground. Kaz lifts the wood again and brings it down on the back of his head. Then again and again I cover Willow's face, but she knows what's happening. You didn't go this far in the first book. No, it didn't. Uh, and there is an extent to which you you realise that you can't rewrite the first book when you're writing a sequel. You do need to not bring things up one or two notches. Um, and certainly the, the violence is more explicit in this one, where it was more implicit in the first one. Although there were a couple of scenes in, in the first one as well, where they actually see Ramage kill a man um, from a distance. But um, but this is, as much as anything else, it's, it is a discussion, it is a ramping up of the violence, but in different ways for different characters. But also then, it 
provides you with an opportunity to discuss this notion of violence. Because again, Finn wasn't a violent man in the first book, and now he still tries to refrain, or you do not put him necessarily in situations where he commits violence. Rather, he is still the more vulnerable yeah. uh, individual here. He's an observer of the violence that takes, takes place around him in this dystopian world. And how he responds to that is a key theme that runs through the novel um, because he chooses to respond to it in a different way to other characters. Um, and I, I guess the moral question is, if there is no law and order what will we resort to as human beings to stay alive? But you raise this question on a more philosophical level as well, almost uh, over two-thirds of the way through the book. We've got a confrontation with uh, a wilder individual. There's something I've wondered. Ever since Ramage first chased Rose into Angari, I don't get you, wilders, I tell Cole. You must have been ordinary people before the virus, farmers, mechanics, teachers... How did you end up falling in with Ramage? Don't judge us all the same, kid. When Ramage took over, most of us had no choice. It was follow him or end up like Ken Butler, dragging from here to Swan Marsh behind a trail bike. I'm shocked to hear that name again. You knew Ken Butler? I used to farm down near Nelson. I knew Ken since I was a kid. But you still follow Ramage. Why? Like I said, no choice. There are others like me too. Blokes just waiting for their chance. But somehow, Ramage always manages to find another animal like Fenton or Wilson, blokes who'll kill just for the fun of it. A bit f- even more frightening in some ways than actual violence. Yeah, it is. And I'm actually really interested in that notion of, um, of following orders and what whether you retain moral culpability and, and whether that is a defence. You know, it was the Nuremberg trial. Basically, we were following orders. We were not making those orders ourselves, but we were following them and perpetrating violence um, as a consequence. But also the situations people get themselves into. So you have two new Sileys in this story, Gabrielle and Tahir, mm. no landers, as mm. you call them, fighting for some place to settle and put roots down. You also have the farmers protecting the farm. So in some ways, uh, this is justifying violence? Yeah, look, the, the no-landers, uh, they're climate refugees, basically. Um, and they've come here, they have been, again, sold into slavery, they've escaped, and they are Africans, and they've, they've come from war-torn countries. And their justification is to Finn is, you don't understand violence because you were not born into it. We were born into it, it's what we know. And that's, our, that's why we respond in the way that we do. And as you say, they are trying to find a home. They're trying to find somewhere to settle and to, to establish their lives, having come the distance that they have. So in some ways, violence stems from the way you were raised or the circumstances under which you've grown up. Conversely, then, violence is overcome if you are brought up within a settled sort of environment perhaps or not yeah and look we know that that's it's hard to generalize and i mean i juxtapose um finn's response to the violent world he is confronted with with kaz's 
and they come to it from different upbringings. Finn from a very stable, loving upbringing. Kaz from a very disrupted life where she's, as I said, she comes to Sile. She does, has no connection with her family anymore, with her country. Um, so, and she's lost her sister. And, and she's abused. And she's abused, yeah. There are a couple of points where she says, we have to be as bad as them. We have to do what they do in order to hold our ground. So it, it does raise this whole notion of uh, where violence comes from. But also then, you've in that quote I just read, there are characters who are, can I say it, inherently evil? One of the things you want to do when you are creating story is that you want to ensure that there's nuance. Um, and it was very important, for instance, at the end of the first book that there were some human traits that this villain, Ramage, was seen to possess. Um, and I had a lot of arguments over this particular scene where he actually demonstrates love and affection. Um, and, um, you know, he's the archetypal villain, and yet here he is. You've got to build that nuance in. Um, and it's the same with the, with the new characters that we bring in, that I bring into uh, Wilder Country, the Nolanders. Um, they're not it's no, no situation is completely black and white. There are levels that people will choose to sit at. And, and I kind of approach the whole level of that of, of violence in the book in that regard. But it does raise uh, a perfect opportunity to discuss mm. all these yeah. elements, especially in the world we have around us today and the nature of violence that we're seeing. Mm. Last but not least, of course, the last line. <laughs> now, we can't, we can't give the ending of the story away. But in the first book, you had Ramage's survival, which was a sort of prelude to what was going to happen. It sets up the next text. In this book as well, you can't necessarily continue with Ramage. That would be um, whipping a dead horse, mm. to use a violent image. Mm. Uh, so you do raise the prospect of... Something other, shall we say? Ramage is still there, obviously, but wherever there's a power vacuum, that vacuum will be will be filled, and we see another villain, Tusker, rising um, to fill that vacuum. But we also see something else happening in this world around them, which is going to either elevate Ramage and Tusker or is going to place them in some sort of where they're going to have to work within some sort of system um, to maintain their power. So the notion of a system rather than an individual perpetrating violence mm. or order or organisation yeah. against which one has to fight as well. Yeah, that's right. So the uh, listener and reader can find out for themselves. The book is Wilder Country by Mark Smith. It's a sequel to The Road to Winter and it's a text publishing release. So thank you very much, Mark. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Well, that was my author. It's sort of like two books for the price of one there. <laughs> that he was going to write a second book. And, well, he's got that idea in yeah. mind, and I think the idea is also there in Wilder Country, but the challenge of taking on or making it new again, mm. picking up on the old story, but then how are you going to repeat what you've got without repeating it, without making it the same? You've got to add dimension to it as well. Mm. Well, you know, my author, Lisa, was, was saying that she first came across the idea and got um, interested in writing, basically, f from through Varuna. Now, that's a writing area um, up in the Blue Mountains. It just sounds delightful. Well, it would be nice to have that time to sit back yeah. and, and, and write or, or get that but she's, focus. But she's, at this time, not 
writing. And and I thought she might have got a two-book contract from Alan and Unwin, but she said, no, 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 it was mm. for the one book. Right. And so one wonders, you know, sort of with these contracts and how they go. But also then there's that rich content of history that can be tapped into, which she's done with her book. Yes, and and she's you can tell sometimes with research just how well it's done. And she's delved in. She's had that personal interest, delved in, so it really does And sit, done the research. Lovely. Well. well, Jan, uh, it'll be next week. So Next week? We'll, well, more authors, more chat. More fun. So thanks for listening and it's time for Ruminations.